From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. I'm Becky Voker with JAMA Medical News. Today we're talking with frequent flyer Dr. Rachel Zhang. She's a fourth-year emergency medicine resident at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. While traveling, Dr. Zhang has helped ill patients aboard commercial air flights. Her experiences spurred her interest in learning more about in-flight medical emergencies. With summer air travel in full swing now, Dr. Zhang has tips for physicians about airline medical kits, legal liability, and more. Dr. Zhang, how extensively have you traveled? I've definitely done my fair share of vacation and travel, but I've taken a few medical missions. I have been to 30 countries now, a few of them in medical school. I went to Vietnam and South Africa, and then while in residency, I have gone to Tanzania and Rwanda for medical missions as well. How often do you encounter medical emergencies on flights? In the last Four years, I've had two medical emergencies that I responded to, and then my husband as well has had two. And he is a physician also? He is a physician also, yes. Some of the reading I've done indicates that the common conditions that usually occur in flight are lightheadedness, loss of consciousness, nausea, vomiting, cardiac or respiratory symptoms. Have these been the conditions that you, your husband, or other physicians you know have encountered during flights? Yes, definitely. One of mine was a little child that was vomiting. So definitely vomiting is a common complaint. My husband has responded to two syncopal episodes, and many of my colleagues have responded to lightheadedness or vomiting. In the literature, the suggested most common one is syncope or near syncope. That accounts for about 37% of in-flight medical emergencies. The next most common is respiratory distress. Uh, That's about 12%, followed by vomiting and then chest pain. Do you know if those conditions are related to circumstances in the plane, either cabin pressure or other things like that? The airplane definitely causes a lot of unique changes in our body that we're not even really aware of. So being on a flight is equivalent to being at 6,000 to 8,000 feet of altitude. So at sea level, all of us healthy people are breathing 99 to 100%. But when we go up into the air, if we were to put a pulse ox on our finger, most of us would be about 92 to 95 So you can see very quickly how anyone that had underlying respiratory issues or cardiac stuff, if their pulse ox drops lower, it's going to exacerbate maybe some anginal chest pain or make their COPD or asthma worse. In turn, the very dry, like low humidity that you get in the airplane actually has been shown to exacerbate like asthma and COPD because of the increased dehydration and the increased mucosal dryness. Were the medical supplies on the plane adequate for the emergencies that you were dealing with? I would say that the emergencies that I got called for were very minor. One person had a headache and wanted Tylenol, which is in the medical kit. The second one, when I was dealing with a young child who was vomiting and very dehydrated, I was surprised to find that the kit has no form of oral rehydration solution. So I had to mix my own which is very easy. It's six teaspoons of sugar, half
half a teaspoon of salt in a liter of water. And you do have syringes, so for very little kids, mom, you can mix that up and mom can pull it up and give it to the child. But you would have to know how to mix that yourself. Or you would have to put in an IV in a dehydrated little child in the air to give them fluid, which I think would be very challenging. And in the standard kits, there's no requirement for antiemetics. So even though you're rehydrating them, you have no ability to give them a medication to stop vomiting, which I also was surprised to learn. Are there any standard supplies that the airlines are required to keep on board, either by federal law or their company policies? In the United States, there is federal law that mandates that all airlines must have a first aid kit, an oxygen tank that requires enough oxygen for 2% of the passengers for the duration of the flight, an AED, and then a standard medical kit. And in that medical kit, you get a stethoscope, a blood pressure cuff, and gloves. You get an array of oral airways and bag valve masks and CPR masks. You get a few needles, a few syringes, and a 500cc bag of fluid. And then you get a short list of medications, Tylenol, Benadryl, both in PO and IV form, aspirin, atropine, albuterol, one amp of D50. You do have epinephrine in both code dose and anaphylactic dose, lidocaine, and nitroglycerin tablets. Do any of the airlines that you know of go beyond the minimum? Some of the airlines that go way above and beyond are ANA, which is a Japanese airline, and Lufthansa. Both of them have very extensive medical kits, and they actually go as far as to have a program called Doctors on Board. And the Doctors on Board program essentially allows you to designate yourself as a physician prior to boarding the flight, like when you book your ticket. And so they know they don't have to page overhead. They know what medical personnel is on board, and they give you some access to their medical supply kits and information when you sign up as a physician so that you know what's on their plane. That program is just in those two airlines, is that correct? And Turkish Airways as well. Would it be helpful if there was a universal program like that that applied to all airlines worldwide? Yes, I think it would be very helpful. We don't even have a national reporting database to figure out how often these in-flight medical emergencies are happening. So the numbers that we have, we think, are grossly underestimated. And it's very well known in the airline industry that they expect in-flight medical emergencies to increase for several reasons, mostly because people are flying more, more elderly, and people with pre-existing medical conditions are flying. It's expected by 2023 that half of the passengers in the air are going to be over the age of 50. Given those situations, if you had a wish list of things you'd like to see, what would they be? I would start small. The FAA regulations for the emergency medical kit and the AED on board went into effect in 2001. And since then, they have not re-looked at or readdressed the medications in the kit. For example, lidocaine is in the kit still because that used to be a recommendation to give during cardiac arrest. It no longer is, but lidocaine is still in the kit as opposed to other medications. So at the very least, it would be nice to see the FAA reevaluate what's in the mandated medical kit 
and add some things such as basic stuff like Zofran for antiemetics. The issue with airlines is they're governed by so many different bodies, not just in the U.S., but internationally. So to create a across-the-board mandate on medical supplies, you would first have to create an international governing body of airlines. So my wish would be that there would be one person that could actually create that and then have them mandate medical equipment. And then if I really had all of my dreams, I would say pediatric and obstetric stuff would be beneficial. There is no obstetric equipment or medications in any of the kits. There is no pediatric dosing or, aside from a CPR mask, anything pediatric-related. And there's not even a glucometer. Do you think physicians are sometimes hesitant to come forward when there's a medical emergency on their flight? Yes, I do, for a variety of reasons. You don't know what you're stepping into. You don't know why they're asking for a physician. You don't know if you're equipped to handle what they're asking for. And maybe you're really exhausted from a long travel. Maybe you had a beer with your dinner and you're not sure if you should step in. Maybe you are worried about the liability. And I think a lot of physicians aren't sure what their liability is if they step in and something goes wrong. What are the potential legal liabilities of stepping forward to help a patient? It depends where you are. The U.S. has a federal law. It's called the Aviation Medical Assistance Act, and it was released in 1998. And that says that an individual shall not be liable for damages in federal or state court for any reason when they provide in-flight medical care unless they were grossly negligent or had willful misconduct. And this covers physicians, nurses, nurses' assistants, paramedics, and EMTs. The statement goes even further that says you can't be liable if they don't divert the plane and something goes bad and your recommendation was to divert the plane. You can't be held liable if the equipment fails. What it becomes a little unclear is when you're on international flights. For example, the United Kingdom does not have federal law on this topic, and the U.K. airlines decide individually how they will cover physicians for legal protection. And then it becomes unclear what airspace you're in. Are you on a French flight to the U.S. in U.S. airspace? Are you covered under U.S. law or under French law? It gets very complicated. Have you ever been in a situation where you had to ask the pilot to divert the flight? I have never been in a situation where I had to ask the pilot to divert the flight. But diverting the flight is not quite as simple as it may seem because diversion comes with a lot of other things besides just the issue of that one patient. It's how far you are from the next possible airport. It's what emergency they're having. If somebody is going into labor, the next closest airport might not have medical capabilities to deal with obstetric issues. So where you are in the air, how much fuel you have on board, what the medical emergency is, and the closest diverting location all plays into the decision of the pilot whether you would divert the plane or not. And ultimately, it's the pilot's decision. You did a grand rounds on in-flight medical emergencies at your hospital. Is that correct? That is correct. And were a lot of your colleagues interested? And if they were, what were the most important things you felt they should know? I would say, yes, lots of people were interested. Things that I felt were most important for them to know 
with what equipment they can expect to have on board, what the most common chief complaints are, and then what other resources they have. So flight attendants are all certified in CPR and AED use. And knowing that there is a medical command doctor who deals with in-flight medical emergencies every day was not something I knew. And I think it's helpful to know you're not entirely alone up in the air. You can speak with another physician, particularly if you're very out of your element. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about how to respond to an in-flight medical emergency? There's been a lot of questions that I've received about credentials. Do you need to show credentials? Is it required of you? The FAA has come out with multiple regulatory letters, most recently in 2006, that said it would be preferable for flight attendants to check credentials of people holding themselves out of medical specialists. So I wouldn't be surprised or offended if somebody asks you for credentials. So I always fly with my medical credentials now. I want to thank you for your time to talk with us today. This was very helpful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That wraps up this episode of JAMA Medical News. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to JAMANetworkAudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. Once again, I'm Becky Voker for JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.